He was a morbidly obese surgeon destined for an operating table and an early death. Now he's a rebel MD who is fabulously fit and fighting to make America healthy again. This is Stay Off My Operating Table with Dr. Philip Ovedia. And we're back. It's the Stay Off My Operating Table podcast with Dr. Philip Ovedia. I'm the resident uh, idiot, Jack Heald. And we are joined today by Dr. Paul Kolodzik. Uh, and Phil, he sent me, I would love it if, if I could do this. He sent a biography. And I've never gotten the opportunity to read the biography of a guest on the air. So with your permission. Let's do it. More, All right. more formal than we typically are, but I think it would be a great. Well, uh, it'll de- I'm sure it'll devolve from there. <laughs> Dr. Kolodzik graduated from the University of Notre Dame. Oh, man. Fighting Go Irish up. and Catholic. Oh, geez. And attended Wright State University School of Medicine. Well, that made up for it a little bit, I guess, huh? Oh, <laughs> I told you it would degenerate. Are you comparing me to Phil here? <laughs> uh, he then completed his residency in emergency medicine, which I think is freaking cool, serving as chief resident in his final year. Um, yes, I am adding some opinions here in the biography. He has served as clinical faculty at the Ohio State University School of Medicine has and has been an assistant clinical professor at Wright State University since 1989. He's board certified by the American College of Emergency Medicine and the American Board of Preventative Medicine. Dr. Kolodzik is also board certified in addiction medicine. He's been in private metabolic health practice for the last five years. Phil, I think that last sentence is why he's here. Exactly. I think that last sentence kind of gives uh, the idea that uh, Paul is another uh, fellow physician who has seen his way out of the uh, morass, so to speak, and uh, is really focused on turning around the direction of healthcare uh, and uh, making meaningful improvements for his patients. And that's why I've been so excited to uh, have this discussion with him. Uh, so welcome, Paul. Uh, why, don't you, uh, why don't you fill in a, a few of the gaps that weren't in the uh, formal bio and tell us a little bit about the, the story behind the story and how you pivoted from emergency medicine and what led you down the, the metabolic health pathway? Well, well, thanks, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, I think my experience is probably not that dissimilar to yours. You did it in the operating room, operating on people and, and seeing disease. You know, my perspective is from the emergency department and seeing people come in with preventable problems, often the result of years of insulin resistance, high blood glucose, uh, obesity. And, you know, I see the end result, often people in crisis, um, such as with heart attacks or, or uh, strokes or an episode of renal failure related to a diabetic problem. And so after seeing that for so many years, I, I want to, I think like you, be less reactive and more proactive. Okay. Oh, you got to go deeper though. Um, my my understanding, I I had a client years and years and years ago who was an ER doc and I had long thought that being a doctor was quite possibly 
maybe next to being the Queen of England, the worst job in the world. And he disabused me of that notion, at least as far as, as being an ER doc was concerned. My understanding was he worked regular hours. He had a fixed schedule. He had no office visits. He didn't have the the insanity that everybody else deals with. He just, he worked, I don't know, four or five, eight hour shifts a week and was fat, dumb, and happy the rest of the time. It sounded like if you want to practice medicine, it sounded like a great gig. Yeah, you know, I've enjoyed that career. I, I, I very much enjoyed it. When I started emergency medicine, it was relatively early in the specialties history. So there was a lot of growth uh, through the 80s and the early 90s, and I enjoyed being a part of that. Um, actually, was part of an emergency medicine group that we grew from a couple contracts to about 60 contracts. The way that works is physician groups contract with hospitals to provide the physician services. So I really enjoyed that, stayed clinical the whole time, worked in a lot of different type places, worked in trauma centers, uh, worked in small rural hospitals. And, and to tell you the truth, when you're the only guy there, you know, you got to be the anesthesiologist that night. You know, it, you, you might need to do a little bit of fills work with, uh, you know, relieving attention pneumothorax or whatever. Um, then, then that can be somewhat stressful, but it's also exhilarating. Um, so I have very much enjoyed the practice. I, I actually have downshifted a little bit in recent years. Uh, I still pull a shift every week or so at uh, the VA Medical Center in Dayton. But, you know, I've been able to decrease uh, the necessary knowledge base because I don't have to take care of pediatrics anymore and I don't do a lot of OB gen. So I can just focus on adult medicine. And that's been a, not, a nice combination with my metabolic health practice. Well, talk, what, go ahead, Phil. I was going to ask, what were some of the things that you were seeing in the emergency room that kind of keyed you into metabolic health? You know, for me, um, you know, heart disease is kind of, you know, an obvious connection there. Although, you know, I, I fully admit it took me 10 plus years to see it. Uh, but what were some of the things that you were seeing in the ER that really got you thinking about metabolic health and thinking that there, there, there needed to be a better way of doing this? Um, you, you know, largely it, it was the chronic preventive problems. Uh, you know, let me give you an example. The, the, the diabetic patient that has to go on dialysis, you know, if they would have had the knowledge base to manage that better themselves or been provided the right guidance in terms of decreasing their carb intake and, and decreasing that vascular inflammation, it would make a huge difference in their life. You know, at the VA now, I see a lot of peripheral vascular disease. So I see people losing legs as a result oh. of, of that process. And, 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 you know, I think a lot of it, you know, I don't want to make this too simple, but, but a lot of it boils down to blood glucose if people just had an understanding of the problem that, that high blood glucose causes, um, you know, an example is, you know, if you get a diagnosis of prediabetes, you know, it seems like in medicine out there, kind of the approach is, yeah, your blood, you know, uh, for a patient in the office, the provider says, yeah, your blood sugar is a little bit high. We'll, we'll check it again in a year or so, and we'll make sure it's not too bad. And, and if it is, maybe we'll, we'll start some medicine. 
I'll tell you, that's that's a case where lights and sirens, pre-diabetes is a time when lights and sirens should be going off because that's when you have the opportunity to prevent the lifelong di- uh, disease of diabetes and, and, and head off those potential complications. So I just over time got tired of seeing that and thought I could make a difference um, before patients got to that stage with losing their legs or needing to be on dialysis. Um, and, and then, you know, the deeper, as you know, um, Phil, the deeper you go down this metabolic rabbit hole, it, it, you know, just the more enthralled you get with the things that you can do to help people. Okay. I'm not going to let that go by. Expand on that. You're an ER doc. You're seeing these people come in with problems that you you realize could have been resolved earlier. Let's start specifically with the with the the pre-diabetic. Um, and I know we got we're probably not going chronologically here, but so now you're you're doing something about it. What is it you do? Um, so how, how do you I, how, how do you address that? It, you know, a lot of this is education. Um, it, it's helping people to understand the issues. And I, and I think the knowledge base for people is increasing. I think people are beginning to understand um, some of the basic concepts. So in, in my practice, people come in, and I don't know if this is a similar pattern to what you do, Phil, or not. We haven't talked in detail. Um, but but I my typical patient is that middle-aged, overweight, metabolic syndrome patient. So they may be have some hypertension, they have some pre-diabetes, you know, they're 40 or 50 pounds overweight. Um, So the mechanics of what I do first, and I was in the office today and had a few patients we got started, is um, I I do, you know, a normal history, physical exam, um, and, and then talk about what the next steps are. And one of the next steps almost always is using a continuous glucose monitor for a couple of weeks. Are, are you familiar with those or is your audience? Well, uh, I love it that you brought this up because for, for a myriad of reasons, which I don't need to go into, please expand on this, this continuous glucose monitor. Tell us, okay. tell us about it and, and why you, why you brought it up. So, um, so these are the devices that have been used in diabetics for many years, primarily used to manage insulin. So you can see 24-7 in in real time what your blood glucose is. Really relegated uh, to the use of, of, you know, insulin management in diabetics. Um, But I think have a tremendous use, and there's some controversy about this, but in in my mind, after using this for the last four or five years on non-diabetics, very valuable. So my, my patients are non-diabetic, pre-diabetic, and diabetic. But in particular, I'll use them on non-diabetics and pre-diabetics. So we, we put this device on. It puts a small filament under the skin, sits in what's called the interstitial fluid there. And because that's close to the capillaries in that area where blood glucose exists, you can get an indirect reading of blood glucose. So we leave that monitor on for a couple of weeks and just let people watch what we call their data and their curves. You know, how high does their blood sugar go up? How fast does it come down? Does it stay elevated for a period of time? This device is eye-opening 
for a majority of my patients. Again, I'm seeing a pre-selected group. They're, they're metabolic syndrome patients. A lot of them already are pre-diabetics. Some of them come in and they say, I just want to lose 25 pounds. And you put this on there and we decide, we see, you know, almost immediately that the issues are much bigger. You're pre-diabetic or, you know, I've even had patients that just came in to lose weight and we find their blood sugar spike into 220 and they're diabetic. So these devices, I think, are very valuable in two phases. One, a diagnostic phase where you see what's going on with the patient and then the therapeutic phase where they use it to help guide their diet. Um, and, and the diagnostic phase, I think, is the most important because it's eye-opening to people. They, they connect the dots that that piece of cake they ate last night spiked their blood sugar over 200. And they know that if they want to reverse course here, if they want to reverse their prediabetes or, or you know, if they're just have insulin resistance, they want to reverse the course so they never become pre-diabetic or diabetic. It's just an exceptionally valuable tool. So you get almost, you get real-time feedback as to how, how whatever you stuffed into your mouth is affecting your blood glucose. Yeah, you, you get it real-time. And again, you, you use it initially as a diagnostic tool, but but then you can use it therapeutically to help guide diet over time. I can see my patients data remotely that they appreciate that because, you know, they know somebody's kind of keeping an eye on them, <laughs> but, but they learn what they can eat and what they can't eat. And, and, uh, and it helps guide their diet and invariably it leads to weight loss. So, you know, we work with them, we help them set up their low carb diets other components of the plan, intermittent fasting. I'm big on strength training because if you can increase uh, the quality of the insulin receptors on your muscles, then that'll soak up more insulin and help with that insulin resistance issue. So it's a, a multifaceted program, but you, you know, we start with CGMs um, and then measuring insulin resistance. And, yeah, and I think the, um, you know, if the continuous glucose monitor was more widely used, um, it really could be the tool that changes everything, you know, changes medicine, uh, changes our food environment, um, certainly changes behaviors. I, I think it is, you know, that powerful a tool because, you know, one of the problems we have uh, around health is immediate feedback is hard to come by. Yeah. Um, you know, most of these things we talk about, you know, heart disease, that's a long-term play, uh, you know, and it's hard to really keep people or, or have people focus on, you know, are they headed towards heart disease or are they not headed towards heart disease? Um, whereas the CGM really gives that immediate feedback that is, is so uh, powerful in helping people to understand what's going on and how they can start to reverse course. Well, Dr. Klodzik, I'd like, I'd like you to expand on uh, something else that you said. You said you're a big fan of intermittent fasting and strength training. Uh, and you, and you said something that I've never heard before. Remember, I'm not a medical professional um, about increasing the, was it the, the the number or the quality of the insulin receptors on the muscle? I, I'm... Yeah. So, so if you strength train, this sounds kind of strange coming from a doc, but with my patients, I make strength training a priority. 
um, even more than cardiovascular fitness. You know, most docs will focus on, you know, you, you need to you need to get your heart rate up. You need to get on those cardio machines. In fact, I actually did. I, I do TikToks occasionally and I did a TikTok and, and the title was get off the gosh darn cardio machines or ex- <laughs> ex- cardio machines. Um, and, and I didn't mean completely get off the cardio machines. People should follow the American Heart Association guidelines and get cardiovascular fitness in. But where the money is, I think, for middle-aged, overweight people with insulin resistance it is to increase your muscle mass. You know, we all lose muscle mass as we get older. Um, sorry, I think you lost my video there for a second. We did. I, I brought it back. Um, but but we, all lose, we heard you, so. Yeah, okay. We all lose muscle mass as, uh, as we get older. Um, and so, you know, increasing that muscle mass can be beneficial for a variety of reasons, but in the metabolic syndrome patient, what happens is when you increase that muscle mass, you're increasing the sensitivity and the quality of the insulin receptors on your muscles. And so your muscles are slow, slow down, slow down. You increase the, the sensitivity and the quality that. The, over, the overall quality, it's basically the ability for your muscles to absorb more insulin, okay? By increasing muscle mass, yes, you're, you're increasing, you're, you're improving the muscle's ability to absorb insulin, and there's technical yeah. stuff underneath that that at this point. Yeah, I don't, and, and, okay. and I don't understand all that technical stuff either, but I've, I've, done, I've done enough research to understand um, that that you basically let me use a non technical term. You just soak up more insulin. That, okay, I that that I, I and, right. and that's more, so settled into the the brain yeah. here. And, and more glucose. I mean, you know, you yeah. you basically it, end up pulling sugar out of your bloodstream into your muscles, uh, which uh, you know it may not solve the problem. You know. Uh, it doesn't solve the problem of, of, you know, putting too much sugar into your system to start with, but it gives you a little bit of a buffer, uh, certainly. Right, right. I mean, it's additive. It's an additive effect. Um, but, but you're right, Phil. The point is you, you lower your blood glucose a little bit. And I don't know about you, Phil, but like I think of this in simple terms, and I don't know if it's entirely scientifically accurate. But but this is what I tell my patients. If you have extra blood glucose in your system, you know, from eating carbs, it goes to your liver. It gets converted to fat. Some of it can stay in the liver as fatty liver disease. Other of it gets deposited in the visceral area around the middle. Um, and, and what I want to do is help you lower that blood glucose because I believe losing weight or improving metabolic health is more hormonal disease related to insulin than it is a calories in calories out issue. And so uh, what we want to do is lower that blood glucose, even to the point where we're reversing that process. Those muscles are looking around saying, hey, we don't have enough glucose. We don't have enough energy here. Uh, What are we going to do? And they look down and they see that fat around the middle and they say, that's what we're going to do. We're going to tap that. And those fatty acids are going to be our next energy source. And so you basically reverse that process to, to make it, you know, to, to give an image of this, I just talk about the bear that's fattening up for winter. 
They're out gorging on berries and they're getting fat and all this visceral fat is being laid down. And then they go and hibernate for a while and that visceral fat becomes their energy source. Those fatty acids get broken down to provide their energy while they're sleeping for four or five months over the course of the winter. Um, and, and really, that's what we're trying to do here. You know, the bear hibernates for four or five months and doesn't eat, but we just keep going to the grocery store and buying more carbs. <laughs> and, and, and so what, with a low-carb diet, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, to you know, lower that uh, blood glucose so we can reverse that process and, and the weight can come off instead of being put off. A um, couple of questions. You talked about fatty liver disease. Um, I had a dear friend die from from fatty liver disease uh, six, seven years ago. Uh, yeah, it was a it was brutal. Um, and, and this was long before anybody in my circle had ever heard of fatty liver disease. But we can tell just by by looking at her, something's wrong. But nobody knew what. Um, yeah. If you catch it, will this actually will a low carb? I'm assuming we're talking about a therapeutic ketogenic diet will that reverse the the effects of of fatty liver can you reverse that as well heal the liver yeah absolutely it doesn't even have to be ketogenic it can just be low carb you know it doesn't have to be a keto diet it can be a low carb diet but but yes again because those organs now are looking for an energy source and if there's not glucose readily available then it's going to pull fat out of the liver um, so absolutely, that's true. And, and what you say, you know, we, we never used to hear about this. It's becoming, and I don't know if you run in these circles, Phil, but I, I got a friend actually that's an anesthesiologist at the Cleveland Clinic. Um, and he says the, the liver transplants they used to do all used to be as a result of bad cirrhosis or bad hepatitis. And he says now the majority of the liver transplant they're doing is for end-stage fatty liver disease called NASH, N-A-S-H is the acronym, acronym non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. That's a mouthful. Um, but it's becoming more and more common. It's directly related to, you know, the obesity um, and diabetic issue. And I'm sure Phil and I can both talk about how that goes back to the food pyramid, et cetera. But, but that's why that disease is more prominent today. Yeah. And, you know, what's really most concerning about it is, you know, we see it in younger and younger people. And, and you know, we're seeing teenagers uh, developing fatty liver now. And so that that's, you know, as you said earlier, you know, that's when the lights and sirens should be going off. Um, you've probably noticed, you know, uh, being an ER in the ER, obviously, you know, uh, CAT scans are, you know, ubiquitous and almost every patient ends up getting the CAT scan. Uh, and the, you see, if, if you look for it, you see the fatty liver on almost all of the scans. And yet the, the, the radiologist, you know, the doctors that are reading those studies never even comment on it because it's basically become like a normal finding, essentially. Absolutely. I agree with that. Yeah. You get CAT scans anymore. You get CAT scans all day long. And it's yeah. always not in, not in every patient, but and I've seen it progressively over the years, you know, you know, when it wasn't that common and now it's very common. So I can, can uh, I can I ask one yeah, more question that goes back to weight training? Yeah. Um, uh, 
you talked about strength training. Um, <laughs> I'm. Is there a difference metabolically in terms of of helping your insulin receptive recept insulin sensitivity? God, I I do sound like an idiot sometimes, don't I? Is there a difference between training for strength versus training to to just to get bigger? I know bodybuilders have a different training regimen than strength trainers. Is is there a significant difference? Um, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, Jack. I, I don't know the details because I'm actually not dealing with patients at that level of nuance. You know, my typical patient is, you know, maybe let, let's say a 45-year-old overweight female that has never done strength training before. I'm just trying to convince her that, you know, this isn't going to make you look bulky and, and it's going to help you decrease your insulin resistance. So um, in terms of the difference between building strength and building bulk, uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I, I, I don't know how to differentiate that. I'm at the level where I'm just trying to get them to do something. I got you. you know, that, got you. that often will start with just body weight at home and maybe some bands and, and you know, for, for some people, just some five or 10 pound weights, but it's really, uh, it, it's really satisfying when they graduate and feel that they can go to the gym. They are embarrassed to go to the gym. I, I got to tell you one story about a patient of mine had, it was one of these women's women and she had never strength trained and then she got really into it. So after yeah, about eight months ago into the gym, she came in for her next appointment one day and she said, you know, I don't, I wish your, your, your audience could see us, but it's like, she's in looking in the mirror, combing her hair. And she looks and she says for the first time in her life, she saw that she had a bicep and she was just thrilled. <laughs> and, and so now when she comes in, she refers her, them to her as her guns that her guns are doing. Um, <laughs> But, you know, that's the kind of thing you can do with helping people with lifestyle changes. Um, and, you know, I haven't had a single woman get bulky. I've had a lot of them tell me that that their clothes are fitting a lot better, a lot better. The, the one other one other consideration is, here is if you're building muscle mass, but losing fat at the same time, muscle weighs more than fat. And, and so the scale changes might not be as dramatic. But but most of my patients are okay with that because they're looking better, they're feeling better, and their clothes are fitting better. Yeah. So the thing, can I mention about increasing muscle? Two things. One yeah. is obviously in, in in all of us as we get older, it, it's a great tool for um it, it, it's a great tool um to maintain your bone density because you know when your ligaments and your tendons are attached um to bones they get stressed a little bit with weight training and that helps decrease the risk of osteoporosis um so that's really one other tremendous advantage and then another is not that this is a big deal and i think neither phil nor i are calories in calories out kind of people um but when you increase your muscle mass you are increasing your basal metabolic rate a little bit so you are burning a little bit more energy so that can help with weight loss as well yeah, and I, I always, you know, like to point out to patients that, you know, your your muscle is burning that energy around the clock, um, you know, as opposed to the cardio that, you know, you're only going to burn that energy while you're doing the cardio. Um, but if you're building muscle, that's going to be extra energy that you're burning, you know, 24 hours a day. 
which really helps to magnify uh, that uh, effect. Yeah. What, hey, Jack, um, are you, Jack, are you going to post a picture that will demonstrate to your audience that I'm a 6'4", 240, completely cut guy? Totally. Oh, yeah. Okay. We, we've had, uh, huh? we, we, yeah, we send us the pictures. We will make sure to get them in the show notes. We've had a couple of the uh, a couple of the you know trainer fitness guys high level athletes on here. Um, they love they love when we post their their uh, shirtless pictures. Some of them it's hard to find pictures of them wearing shirts. That's uh, you know we've I know, had who you're, that, I know but, exactly who you're referring to. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to hear I'd love to hear a little bit about you know how this has now you know kind of come circle how this spills over now into your um you know when you do do the shifts in the er you know how has it changed your approach because i know it certainly has had a big approach on the way that i uh, you know deal with my cardiac surgical patients you know one of the advantages working at the va is it's not as rushed as the community hospitals i've worked in the past so i actually get the chance to you know, sit down and talk with the patients. And, you, you know, after all these years, I just, I, I mean, I enjoy, you know, the term used to be picking up the chart and seeing the next patient. Now they all come up in the computer. Um, but how this is translated is that that I sit down and I do a lot of education with people. And the typical patient is the patient that comes in with a completely unrelated problem. You know, they, they come in for something uh, like, um, I, I don't know, feeling weak and dizzy, let's say, which is a common complaint in the emergency department. And, and we do all their labs to make sure there's nothing serious going on. Yeah, you know, and, and the, their blood sugar, some of them are diabetic, their blood sugar is running at 350, you know, and it's like, I look back through the chart, it's been like that, you know, for months. Um, and I get the opportunity to sit down and, and explain you know, some of this to people and, and they, and they begin to get it. They begin to understand they're willing to go out and look at a low carb approach to their life because what are they had always looked at really is just adding more medicine or adding more insulin. And so they're really willing, I think at that point to make some changes. Um, I had a patient a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, Phil, you tell me this. And and I talked with him about his blood glucose and, you know, how that's causing vascular injury. Um, and, and I said, so, yeah, you know, you need to follow up with your doc and do something about it. He goes, doc, he goes, I, I, I'm going to be right on this doc. He said, well, why are you going to make this change now? He goes, well, doc, you scared me more than my regular doctor scared me. So <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but a leer, in my mind, a little fear sometimes is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I think it's a it's a good thing for a patient. Uh, and it unfortunately, you know, says a fair amount about our medical system these days, because, uh, you know, I'm sure you, you know, you see it that these problems, you know, haven't been hiding. Uh, they, they've <laughs> been there. Uh, it's just that, you know, we, we don't address them uh, and we certainly don't address them aggressively enough. And, uh, you know, you can follow the progression of, you know, the pre-diabetes to the diabetes to the vascular disease, 
And, you know, it, it's just a shame that, you know, you, you know, this could have been better dealt with and, and, you know, we could have prevented so many of these problems if it had just been, uh, uh, you know, properly addressed and, and uh, aggressively addressed at the, you know, at the earliest signs of trouble. Yeah, we have a health system. You you opened the door for me there, so I'm going to make a comment. <laughs> awesome. We, we have, I mean, we got a health system that treats disease. Yet, you know, and, and all the incentives are toward treating disease. Um, you know, uh, preventative services, really, what we do, Phil, really our metabolic practices are, have a tendency not to be valued a lot, certainly by insurance providers. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not a primary care doc, so I'm not going to, this is not primary care doc bashing mode, but when I got out of practice, excuse me, when I got out of residency, um, mid eighties, most of the docs work for themselves, um, in, in either individual practices or small group practices. And it seemed like, you know, it was less of the scenario of the doc during a visit with their face in the computer. You, you know, just taking the only, you know, the 20 minutes that they have with a patient today um, to, to, you know, adjust medicines. It, it's all they can do to do that. Uh, most docs are, are not, you, you know, they, they don't work for themselves anymore. They work for hospital systems or whatever. And I, again, am not meaning to be um, in any way negative about that, but they're told what their schedules are. And you get 20 minutes and you just don't have time to address the issues like Phil and I address with patients in 20 minutes. So I, I don't have the expertise of a primary care doctor. You really don't want me managing your complicated hypertension or even diabetes. Um, but I do have the ability to sit and talk about patient with patients about the root cause of their issues, put a plan to further diagnose together to further diagnose the, those and then put a plan together to reverse those. Um, so it's just, it's a different medical landscape than it was 30 years ago. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, the incentives are not for prevention, they're for um, just, you know, being I call able it, to manage. I call it disease maintenance. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's a great term to tell you the truth. I'm going to steal that from you. I they, want us, they want us sick, but not dead for as long as possible. Yeah, that that's a little bit nefarious. I hope that's not completely true. Well, um, you know, I'm not a medical professional, so they I don't have a license they can take away for saying that. So I I have a little more freedom to to toss yeah. bombs than than you guys yeah, might. But, yeah, yeah, and so, uh, you know, I, I I mean, I I would say you're uh you know, I I do at this point uh really question a lot of what our colleagues are doing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do start to push back and ask them, you know, basic questions like, are you happy with the results that your patients are getting? And if they're, if they're not, and, and I know that they're not, you know, we see the burnout that's occurring. Um, what, why are we allowing this to continue? Uh, it really is a question for our profession and, and our colleagues do need to start waking up uh, because it, th this doesn't end well for our patients and it doesn't end well for the doctors either if we if we don't start to change the, the, the path here. Yeah, I agree with that completely.
um, you know, that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing now. Cause you know, I just got my, you know, metabolic health practice, taking care of patients, still enjoying a little time in the emergency department. But, you know, in my practice, I'm the boss and I get to take care of patients the way I want to take care of patients. Yeah. And, and that's what we as doctors need to get back to is taking care of patients the way that we want to take care of them, not the way oh. that the system wants us to take care of them. Yeah. I I, I want to follow that line of thought. Normally the the audience that that we're speaking to are are folks like me, non-medical professionals who are looking for ways to get healthy and we're tired of dealing with the crap that we've been fed our whole lives that we can see doesn't work. However, I would like you to talk to the medical professionals. You've made that transition just like Phil has. Talk about um, the the challenges you faced, how you overcame them. Encourage those those medical practitioners who are listening to us or watching this this YouTube, who are thinking, "God, I wish I could do this." How do they do it? Yeah, it it, it takes kind of a high testosterone level um, to you, you know step out and you know. Um, for most people, borrow the money to start a practice, realize I, and I don't know exactly your model, Phil, but mine is uh, to, uh, uh, you know, take, not take insurance, you know, insurance covers labs for my patients and their CGMs. Um, but, you know, my professional services are not covered by insurance. Um, and there's a movement in this regard. You know, there's even primary care docs out there, direct primary care physicians like Brian Lenski's and Procollagian, for example, that are doing that. Um, but I think for the younger docs, it, it's tough because, you know, they're coming out of school with a lot of debt um, and, you know, they need to address that. Um, you, you know, young families, that type of thing. I, I'll be honest with you. I was fortunate. I was in a little bit of a different position because, you know, you know, I had spent a lot of years in the emergency department and I got to the point where, you know, I could kind of do what I wanted. Um, it, it's going to be tough because, you know, I had been involved. I've been involved in the business side of medicine as we grew that practice I alluded to previously. Um, and business models are hard to change. And it's really just a matter of, of individuals deciding what they want to do themselves. And, and again, having the fortitude to do it and docs getting together um, and indicating that, as I think Phil said, it's just it, it's not right that we do. What was your term? Disease maintenance. And that's all we do. Yeah. Um, so I, I wish there was an easy answer. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think there's an easy answer other than more people doing what Phil and I are doing. Well, it sounds like there's an opportunity, frankly, a business. It sounds like there's a business opportunity um, yeah. that. Uh, all right. I'm speaking to the audience now. Those of you who are venture, venture capitalists who are wanting to do something with your money to actually make a positive difference in the world rather than just create the next whizzy widget. Um, here's an opportunity. Let's help some of these young doctors who want to get out of the disease maintenance business and get into the health restoration business. I would be willing to bet there is a business model that will work where you guys 
finance the the start of the business, uh, have an equity position in the 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 business end itself. The doctor provides the labor. It's it's a VC play. It obviously is. There's some smart people out there who know how to make this happen. Let's make it happen, world. Okay, let's do off. it. I'll get off um, my soapbox. <laughs> What you know, one other interesting uh, aspect of uh, I know your practice and what you do, uh, Paul, uh, that I'd like to talk about is uh, you get into some addiction issues as well, um, alcohol addiction. And, uh, you know, talk a little bit, uh, I guess, about that in isolation, but how you see it relating to metabolic health. Um, well, um, you, you know, many of the characteristics of those two diseases are the same. You, you know, there's always this issue of, you know, if you're eating food and food is necessary for life, um, can you be addicted to it? And I firmly believe you can be addicted to certain types of food. I, I think there's no question there is a sugar addiction that exists. Um, and I think the way to manage that is the way we manage some other you know, addictive diseases. And, and that's with, you know, I, I refer some of my patients to cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I have them journalize, which in journalizing um, is very important in the addiction area. Um, let me give you an example. I've actually worked with a lot of alcohol patients. And there's something I wanted to mention about that as well. But, but, um, but getting patients to just keep a journal of the number of drinks that they have on a given day and being able to look back over the previous months and kind of see where they were, where they were and where they've come from, uh, I, I think can be very helpful. Um, the other part of that a little bit is the medication aspect of it. And, and I think it's worth talking at least briefly about this. Um, so one of the medicines I've used um, for alcohol, and, you know, alcohol has a lot of carbs in it. So it's part of the discussion here, I guess, um, is naltrexone. Um, naltrexone is a complete opiate blocker. It, it caps uh, the endorphin and enkephalin receptors in your brain. And I use a method called the Sinclair method. The Sinclair method is simply taking some of this naltrexone that blocks those endorphin receptors in your brain um, at the time you drink. So you'll have a patient take uh, some naltrexone an hour before they drink on days they drink. And then on days they don't drink, um, then they just let those receptors run wild, go do a workout, go take the dog for a walk, whatever. And over a period of time, I've used this in my practice now for seven or eight years, um, they realize that they don't get as much of a warm and fuzzy response related to um, related to the use of alcohol. So their alcohol gradual use gradually diminishes. So it's really a harm reduction approach. You know, the, the standard for the treatment of alcohol has always been, you know, complete abstinence, um, you know, an Alcoholics Anonymous approach. But, you know, that's the, to stay with that approach, you know, which has been the approach since 1935 and not look at other alternatives, I don't think is a good thing. Um, so, um, you know, I think journaling is an important aspect of this and considering, you know, some kind of medication that, that, um, might help. And I, if you will, I'm going to dovetail into that because this is a very interesting thing in my mind. Um, there have been some initial study, you know, the, the, the semaglutide 
the Wagovi, the Ozambic is, you know, in the news almost every okay. day. Slow, slowly here. Um, okay. To, to our listeners, he just said three words that until I did research on Dr. Paul Kolodzik a couple of hours ago, I'd never heard any of those words before. Okay. It sounded yeah. to me, frankly, like it was Dr. Seuss kind of stuff. So if you don't mind, slowly on those three and explain what they are. Are we okay on the naltrexone and the Sinclair method stuff? And I can move on from that. I followed you, but okay. who knows? Go ahead, Phil. No, I was just going to say that Jack uh, hasn't been paying attention to the news because those those medications you mentioned, the weight loss medications, you know, have been uh, in the headlines uh, recently. And uh, I, I like where you're going with uh, with, with this uh, discussion. So, um, so these are the new FDA approved weight loss medications. Um, initially came out as Ozambic, uh, Novo Nordisk, the company uh, that makes it, uh, treated diabetics with it for a few years and noticed, lo and behold, um, these diabetics lost weight. A good medicine because it helps control blood sugar, but it doesn't cause hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. So like, you know, any good pharmaceutical company would do, they went back and did studies on non-diabetics and they found that lo and behold, the diabetics, excuse me, the non-diabetics also lost weight without problems of hypoglycemia. So originally marketed as Ozambic for diabetics in the last two years marketed as um, Wigovi for uh, non-diabetics specifically for weight loss. Um, and the weight loss is estimated to be 12 to 15% with the use of these medications with a couple caveats. Number one, that's in association with the diet and exercise program, which is really what we do, right, Phil? Um, and, and then the other is, is that um, you got to be aware that if you decide to use one of these medications, if and when you go off it, there's going to be weight regain. Um, so I kind of use it as a tool uh, occasionally in a limited number of my member percentage, I should say, of my patient population. Um, but it's with the understanding that it's really a transient uh, tool just to help break through a plateau or to get a jump start. Um, but if you do not make the other lifestyle changes that are absolutely necessary during that time, you know, at some point you're going to be regaining a significant amount of weight. So I think this is another component I add to that program of intermittent fasting, strength training, CGM guided low carb diets. Um, but it's only with a selected subpopulation um, that this medicine is used with the understanding that it's going to be used on a temporary basis. Well, you're yeah. not a primary care physician. How do you work with your patients, primary care physicians? How does that work? Um, you know, it's been very gratifying because um, my patients, first of all, they often come to me because they aren't getting what they need. They feel they're getting what they need from their doc. But I have found the docs to be very collaborative. You know, I tell them I don't have your expertise, as I mentioned previously, um, but I've been working with your patient and it's hard, hard to argue with. I've been working with your patients and they lost 35 pounds and their hemoglobin A1C has dropped from 8.6 to 5.4, you know, and you, you've been able to take them off these three medications. So my relationship with the primary care docs has been generally very good. And they now send me people routinely. 
Well, that was going to be my next question. How do people find you? You're you're an ED doc who's now doing metabolic, but not as a primary care physician. I, I, how, how, how do people find you? I'm on, I'm on Phil's and your podcast, so I'm sure they're going to. Well, I guess that, that'll help, yeah. Yeah. So um, since you asked, I'm licensed in Ohio, Indiana, Florida, and Arizona, so I can treat patients in all those states. You know, I have a website. I'm a member, I'm sure, like Phil, of the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners, um, also of Low Carb USA. So I'm on that website. And then I, I try to do a fair amount of social media stuff. Not not quite as much as Phil does. You know, I'm, he's kind of my idol in that regard. Um, but uh, but I try and do a fair amount of social media stuff. And and I think the cognizance of people in general of, of needing something like this is growing. And I think that's uh, for both Phil and I, uh, you, you know, helping to grow our practices. Um, yeah, you know, I'd like to actually that that would be a great uh, kind of thing to hear your perspective on, because, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, you and I trained at a similar time and, and you know, have, have been, you know, in practice for quite a while now. And, you know, the social media thing uh, obviously isn't something we learned, you know, in medical school. And in a lot of ways, you know, promoting yourself as a doctor was thought to be sort of a, you know, yeah. a, a no-no, you know, it was kind of looked down upon. Uh, but, you know, ultimately we have to get this message to the people. And yeah. uh, that that's what I think is most powerful about social media and uh, why we need to continue to you know, integrate that and, and uh, continue to use platforms, you know, uh, the social media platforms, these podcasts, whatever we can to really get the message to the people that need to hear it ultimately. Yeah, I, I agree completely. So I'm, I'm doing TikToks, I'm tweeting a bit. Um, and, you know, I enjoy, you, you got to get comfortable with it as a clinician, because you're right, we didn't grow up that, in that manner. Um, but, uh, but the more we can get the word out, really, the more people we can help. Uh, in, in your experience, in your practice, um, are you getting to the point where you're saying, okay, I've, I've got all I can handle, or is there still room in your practice to, um, to, to add patients in your week? Yeah, it's a timely uh, question because, um, you know, I grew up in a model where we grew other practices where as you grow your practice, you add clinicians that are properly trained. Right. Um, and that's what I'm in the process of doing right now. In fact, I the last two weeks, I trained a new physician assistant. This is my second one um, that is, you know, joining the practice, working in the office, not not full time. He's working half time. Um, but, you know, we're just increasing our capacity slowly and incrementally in that manner. And I make sure that they're taking care of patients the way I take care of patients. So what's the single most satisfying story? If I said, what's the best story you've got? The best story I got? Yeah, you know what? There are all kinds of you know, different interactions with patients. So I, I'm going to answer that really with a, with a few different patient scenarios. Um, 
So, so one is the 21 year old I had that weighed 275 pounds, who's had two diabetic parents and their parents were having complications. So they bring him in. I know he's an adult, he's 21, but they were still, you know, trying to guide him. Um, and, uh, we took this, you know, six, two guy weighing 275 down to 190, um, and, and, uh, got him in the weight room and, and he changed his pattern of insulin resistance, um, from being fairly significant to resolving now completely. So that's maybe not that dramatic a story, but I got a lot of satisfaction because I really took, I really think we took this young man who was on this path, you know, headed toward a lifetime of disease related to primarily high blood glucose and obesity, you know, and sent him down another path. And I'll tell you, he's never going back. It's like having a CGM on. It's like, you you know, once you see what, you know, a piece of cake does to your blood sugar, you can never unsee that. And so he's on this path that's never going to change. That's fantastic. And he lost a yeah. third of his body weight. Yeah, he lost a third. And, and then Phil and I both have the stories. You, you, you know, the the, uh, the the diabetic that, you know, comes to us with a hemoglobin A1C of 8.6 that you drop into a normal range. And, you know, that patient lost 35 pounds, uh, could barely exercise before, and now he's training for a half marathon. Um, so, you, you know, that's... I think that's why both Phil and I are in this right now. It's, it's, you know, I mean, we're both getting to the point where we could be out on the golf course if we chose to, but that's not what I get my kicks from. I get a lot of kicks from this. There, there are doctors listening right now saying, I want this. I want this. This is why I got into medicine. All right, let's get the VCs out there and the doctors. We we need to make this happen, gang. There's a uh, we've reached critical mass, I think. All right, Phil. Sorry, I'm I'm just kind of my brain is buzzing here. We, you know, I think uh, Paul and I, and uh, you know, I mean, you can think back to all the physicians that we've had on this program now. Uh, oh, yeah. We're all we're all on the same mission and we're all trying to uh, get to that same result, which is really making our healthcare system work for the patients and uh, really being a healthcare, uh, a health promoting system as opposed to the disease management system that, uh, you know, we have currently. Well, we're about a, we're at about an hour, um, and uh, we promised you we wouldn't go much longer than that unless you were absolutely riveting. Okay, we're 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 over an hour, so I guess you've been absolutely riveting. What's the best way for folks to uh, 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 follow, track, contact Dr. Paul Kalazic? So um, my website is Metabolic MDS. So Metabolic MD with an S. dot com. Um, I'm Dr. Colo MD on Twitter. Uh, and that is also my uh TikTok handle. And I actually TikTok, I don't know why it is, but I seem to have the best uh response on TikTok. I got about 50,000 followers now. And but I'm but I'm told I, I'm told, Phil, one of my uh 
uh, or actually uh, one of your uh, Twitter followers is worth about 10 of my TikTok followers from what I hear. So, um, but yeah, so I'm on all those. Uh, we got a YouTube channel too. If you just Google, you know, Kaladzic Metabolic MD, you'll find me. Um, but there's a lot of good information on our website. And if you want to get a hold of us, um, just go there and you can send us an email or uh, there's a chat option. So again, I'm licensed in Ohio, Indiana, Florida, and Arizona. So if if a listener is in any one of those four states, you could actually provide services to them. Yeah. Or I know this sounds crazy, or even adjacent states. I you know, the the licensing regulations are that the patient has to be in the state when you're seeing them. But I actually have people, for example, drive from Chicago into into Indiana so I can see them. Um and you know, it's <laughs> so easy with telemedicine now. So, you know, oh, that's I- Makes sense. I I appreciate it, but it's getting easier and easier. All right. Well, Dr. Colo MD on Twitter and all the other places. We'll make sure all that stuff shows up in the show notes so our listeners can just click on it when they see a link there. Uh, Last words, Phil? Um, Just uh, this conversation was worth the wait. We've been trying to make it happen for uh, quite a while now. So uh, really glad that we were able to get Paul on and, uh, and, you know, get him uh, a wider uh, audience and introduce him to our audience. Another, another physician doing great things. I feel the hey, same Phil, way. I, I actually, I, I forgot. I know I'm taking a minute over, but you I better forgot. be interesting. Yeah. So I'm following it. This is, I'm following Phil's lead here. So I, he put out um, his book, um, get off my operating table or stay, stay out, stay off my operating table. So I'm following his lead and um, I'm actually coming out with a book in May that is continuous glucose monitoring for non-diabetics. So I just want to put a plug in that, uh, you know, your audience might want to look for that sometime in the future. Well, provide us, provide us a link uh, for that. And we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be happy to throw it in uh, promotions and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's all about, it's all about uh, regaining our ability to care for people's health in this country. All right. Well, I I think that's a wrap for Dr. Phil Ovedia and Dr. Paul Kolodzik. I'm Jack Heald. We will we'll talk to you guys next time. Chances are you wouldn't be listening to this podcast if you didn't need to change your life and get healthier. So take action right now. Book a call with Dr. Ovedia's team. One small step in the right direction is all it takes to get started. Contact us at ifixhearts.com slash talk. That's ifixhearts.com slash talk.